Welcome to Any Honey and the Newt. Anthony, there's all these crazy names in baseball. You know, uh, let's see who we have on the bags here. We've got uh, who's on first, what's on second, and I don't know who's on third. Well, that's what I want to find out. I, I say who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yeah. You're going to be the coach too? Yeah. And you don't know the fellas' names? Well, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. No, I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. So I'm sure our listeners are familiar with this sketch. It's uh, it's a classic. Uh, thanks to Abbott and Costello, we want to give credit to that. But uh, yeah, a hilarious sketch of linguistic uh, miscommunication there. Uh, fun fact, my brother uh, reenacted this sketch in, uh, I think he was in like second grade or something like that. And he, uh, he and his best friend were Abbott and Costello. They like stuffed their clothes full of pillows so that they appeared way larger than than they are and uh at some point i forget which one of them it was but they forgot their lines and i'm backstage feeding them their lines and they keep like looking over at me totally like breaking kayfabe but at the same time uh it like added to the sketch somehow it was really really cute it's <laughs> awesome yeah, I love I love that sketch. And so uh, we broke up this episode last last episode. We were discussing language and the relationship of language to thinking, and uh, went too long as kind of I suspected we might. And so we're going to pick up a second episode here on the same topic. Let's hope we can contain it within a second episode because I already know there's like eight different tangents going on in my brain today. <laughs> like I don't know, on third. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, just to kind of pick up from where we left off, uh, we we were talking about the kind of strong claim that some people have made in re- regards to the superior warp hypothesis, which is the idea that language influences our ability to think and, and um, determines what we can think about. And that's the strong claim is that it determines that we can't think of something that we don't have the language for. I think we can reject that. I think uh, the consensus among experts is that that's too strong of a claim. Uh, a more nuanced version, and you were kind of giving an example of this at the end of the last episode, is that if we don't have the language to talk about something, it can be really hard to to think about it, to to get a grip on what it is that we're trying to get. It's kind of ephemeral. Maybe it's slipping between concepts or we're using old concepts that don't quite fit. And so we get frustrated with how it's not really expressing what we want to express. So there does seem to be uh, maybe limitations that are developed or that are uh, that impact our thoughts and that when we do have a name for something when we can be specific it seems to facilitate and generate a lot of new conversation and allow a a lot more growth Uh, we see this in the development of the sciences as as we introduce a new topic and hypothesis and it starts out kind of vague but as we start 
observing and naming our observations, we can uh, have a common shared language in order to make more sense out of that hypothesis and experience. Yeah, and I think uh, to that point, uh, I I don't know. If, remind me if we're gonna save jargon for a little bit later, but <clears throat> but I did want to quickly touch on it because um, when I teach science communication, I basically tell people or uh, facilitate people to to introduce jargon a little later, like in their communication strategies, because uh, one, you don't want to overwhelm your audience. So if there's too much new information, it becomes a distraction to what the message actually is. And to that point, you want to start your, your communication strategy uh, from a place of using simple language that helps build up, you know, I'll, I'll use the word narrative, but a lot of times with science information, it's more about trying to demonstrate a point. Um, you know, mm -hmm. the data is reflect, re reflecting this or we're trying to show that, you know, this method here is better than this one because of this. And so you want to start simple to build that strategy in and then reinforce that. And then you introduce the jargon to really dive deep and start to articulate the nuance between like, you know, picking one strategy over another, especially when it comes to doing stuff like um, not just picking one method over another, but also when it comes to like making decisions that have real consequences, like if, if it's a life and death situation or, uh, in, you know, climate change, for example, right? We should stop doing all this stuff because it's actively harming us and we should start doing this stuff. So you got to like build in that cycle of uh, let's work towards uh, first changing the mindset and then articulating all the points that we need to 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 really reinforce that that mindset to begin with. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point to bring in jargon to talk about the development of jargon and why it, um, why maybe there's been resistance to talking about it in, in common conversations, but why there's a benefit. So a common narrative is that uh, philosophy does all the thinking until it becomes uh, sophisticated enough to spawn a science. And so it's kind of a backhanded compliment, <laughs> right? That, that uh, you know, maybe in philosophy, they raise a bunch of questions, but when we finally develop enough of an understanding of what it is that we're trying to ask and have a have a, a subject that we can orient around, orient our language and experiments around, then it becomes a science. But there's something too, every, every branch of science has its own sophisticated jargon and language, right? Uh, people would often in college or shortly after be kind of, you know, I don't want to get into philosophy. It's too much technical jibber jabberish. I don't understand all those terms. And, and I'd have to remind them, well, yeah, but there's very technical terms, a lot of Latin used in medicine. There's a lot of technical terms in law. There's a lot of technical terms in marketing, right? There's even business, you know, the sometimes we've even made fun of kind of the marketing uh, talk, right? There's a kind of market speak that, that people use to shorthand conversations back and forth. Uh, but it's it's a jargon that specializes the conversation. It allows very specific concept <laughs> differentiation among experts. It's a shorthand way of getting through a lot of preliminary stuff to to deeper elements of that of that study. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw in one other aspect of this, um, which is that sometimes, um, you know, going back to my earlier point of like simplifying the language just to make a point, it's when you go too far with that, 
that you allow people to make their own interpretations of what it is you're trying to say. So when you eliminate all that nuance, right, you're introducing interpretation for what that nuance language would have actually prevented. So it would have been much easier for somebody to make a conclusion if they had all the same background and, and jargon, right? Which is why I always say to like build it in, which is when you end up with stuff that becomes politicized. And I'm not going to point out mm -hmm. a specific example here, but essentially allowing people to have opposite opinions on the same topic when one conclusion might have suited everybody involved to begin with. And uh, I'll, go ahead. Well, I really like, uh, there's this series on YouTube where they say you have to explain the same concept to different audiences, right? So there's explaining it to a toddler, to a teenager, to a college student, to a graduate student, and to an expert in the field. And what I like about that is uh, there is value in all the different types of communication. Sometimes being simple and, and just trying to give a general, you know, get somebody in the ballpark so they're aware of the topic and what's going on. Right. is very important and useful uh, but sometimes that's not sufficient you know you can waste a lot of time trying to work through the nuances if you're not being specific and using the technical jargon so when two experts talk to each other they can just cut through to the really essential elements of what they need to, to discuss by using that technical jargon so i think we need both aspects which is why i get a little bit frustrated at work uh i I am verbose. I do like to write a lot, but in my reports, I'm reporting to my supervisors the facts of, of the situation, the thing that I'm analyzing, the data. I'm trying to provide as many specifics and details. And so I do use, you know, industry jargon and I do use specifics. But if I needed to communicate that report to a general audience, like make an announcement to the, to the firm, uh, I'm not going to just hand over that report, right? I'm going to try and create some kind of easy to comprehend summary that maybe doesn't provide all the details, but gets the gist across. And um, this emphasis on simplify, 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 I think that's good for certain kinds of communication. That's bad when you come to like the reports that are the grounds for that communication. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've all been in those like uh, Zoom calls where somebody is just going through all the background and you're like, oh, just tell me what I have to do so I can leave <laughs> in 30 seconds instead of an hour. Right. Uh, one other yeah. thing that I'll add is this kind of a tangent, but um, something that you had told me a while ago, I still have never gotten out of my mind, which was like, you started going down the path of uh, linguistics and philosophy. And uh, one of the, my you'll have to tell this story better than I can, but this uh, pushback that you receive when you try and like uh, argue over the nuance, because in philosophy, it's extremely important to make sure that the language usage is correct because it leads down different pathways just by making subtle changes in the language. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I don't need to elaborate on that a whole lot, but there is, uh, you know, even among my colleagues, some would prefer to use the language they're familiar with and just try to translate everything from other schools of thought into their language so that they can comprehend it in a, in a realm that they're already familiar, you know, use contextual clues, and, and terms that are familiar to them. But the problem is that those are loaded terms. A lot of them have uh, implications for how they're used and how they fit into the system. And so if your con concepts don't break down in the same way, then you can lose stuff in translation. And so I, I always felt like it was really important to try and get into each schools of school of thoughts, like language, even if 
you didn't become an expert on it, I think you needed to understand the basics to understand uh, how are these concepts related? Maybe something sounds completely absurd if I translate it into my language where those connections are unnecessary or don't exist. But if there's like important problems that are being worked out in that in that avenue of study, uh, those conceptual relationships are extremely important and delicate. You're uh, you're just speaking nonsense right now. It's all just semantics. <laughs> <laughs> Me talk pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as long as we're plagiarizing, I feel like I almost ripped off uh, Sedaris there. But um, so I did want to bring up one example. So so we've been talking about jargon and how it's useful. And yes, we're you know both have been in academia and, and kind of endorse professionals and and expertise um, and specialization, which can be off putting, I think, to people who are like, I don't have access to that. You know, I I don't care about that. I just need to go earn my paycheck and support my family and that kind of stuff. And I and I get that. So I want to kind of give a practical example of why naming things is so important. And uh, this comes from uh, Miranda Fricker gave me the example in her book, Epistemic Injustice. Uh, the original example came from Susan Brownmiller, a feminist who was giving her memoirs. And it was the idea that when she was in this job, I think, uh, you know, almost a decade, there were um, colleagues and, and one in particular who would brush up every time they'd reach for paper they'd brush her breasts or they would um sit there and read and, and like sway their crotch in her face and and just really gross and and annoying behavior but this was a time before there was a language to articulate that to report the behavior so when she finally decided to leave the job couldn't handle it anymore it was giving her physical and mental um you know it was antagonizing her in mental and physical ways um, she just put on the form, like, I'm leaving for personal reasons. There was, she didn't really, she felt like she was being singled out for it, didn't, didn't think it was a shared experience, didn't have a name for it, just felt uncomfortable. And uh, as a result, didn't get any unemployment for her departure from that job. In a support group, uh, she came to find that other women had had similar experiences and w decided like, hey, if this isn't just my experience, if this is something that a lot of women are experiencing, we need to have a way to talk about it, if, if nothing else, then to communicate to each other, but also to develop ways to communicate and report it to management to, to maybe address this problem. And so they went through a list of possible words and names, and nothing felt like it was quite, it was either too strong and therefore a lot of behaviors that were bothersome might not fit into that category, or it was too vague and open, and people might say, well, why is that, why is that a problem? Why is that a bother? until they finally came upon the term sexual harassment, right? And now this is a term we, we're all widely familiar with. We have sexual harassment trainings all the time in, in workplaces. Uh, this is now a common parlance. It's a, a, a reporting system. We have laws kind of surrounding behaviors that might fit into this behavior. Uh, so the development of terminology had a very practical import for those people that felt like their experience was so individual and and kind of shameful that they didn't want to communicate it or share it uh now there was an avenue to talk about it and they weren't alone they were realizing this is a common shared problem and we need to tackle it collectively not just individually yeah you're reminding me of um <clears throat> uh the i forget which supreme court case was it was but it was around obscenity i believe where uh the judge famously said uh, you know, I'll know it when I see it. 
And was this uh, the People versus Larry Flint or something like that? It was. I actually just looked it up. It was uh, Potter Stewart, uh, Obscenity mm. in Jacob Ellis versus Ohio. Okay. In which the in explaining why the material at issue in the case was not obscene under the raw test and therefore was protected speech. But the the whole problem with that, I know it when I see it, is that because court cases are so based on precedent. Right. If one person says, I know it when I see it, how is any future case going to be able to reference that judgment? Right. And so like other judges have to make a distinguish a distinction based on what they see. Um, and what do they bring in this one Supreme Court justice every time to determine if it's obscenity <laughs> or not? Um, what, what about when that person dies? Right. And so like in, in your example, uh, having the language at, at least allows us to put create categories around certain things, whether they be uh, things that are desirable or undesirable and allows us to further categorize them into, you know, into levels, right? This is why we don't just have like murder for everything. There's like aggravated mm -hmm. assault and manslaughter. And uh, so all these different bins of explaining how when somebody is dead because of another person's hands, there's different punishments that are associated with that stuff. Yeah, that's good. I've said this, I think, in a couple of different episodes, but um, one of my favorite um, pieces of knowledge or, or wisdom from uh, Confucianism is Confucius's claim that the beginning of wisdom is to give things their proper names. And there's, I think, the, the wisdom in that is that when you make those distinctions and differentiations, remembering making distinctions being the basis of language uh, you are setting up conceptual boundaries and relationships in that naming process and um, it's i think inappropriate to think that we can set up all the concepts first and then do all the thinking right this is a these kind of inform each other as we develop our thoughts on things we come to find um areas where the concepts aren't fitting they aren't matching our experiences and so we need to develop new names uh but but do develop the names like continue developing the language and this is why things become specialized and, and full of jargon yeah i'm glad you brought that up because i hate uh when people articulate what i uh call a fixed mindset and typically that's re reserved for uh characteristics on behavior but in this case, I'll, I'll use it to say that, like, we shouldn't just classify and uh, construct with the intention that this thing that we've just constructed is permanent uh, in perpetuity, right? It's all about, like, I have no basis right now to classify this thing. So I'm just going to do it based on my perspective now with the understanding that somebody else may be able to add or detract from this and call it something else uh, that might be more suitable, right? And so like language because of that becomes very fluid. And I guess, uh, I don't know if we have time for this, but this is how you go from a generalized point, right? To being able to say that tree over there. Yeah, that's very good. And I think uh, now that we've sung the praises of specialization and the importance of language, uh, let me rip off the bandage a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, as much as I think that's all true, I am also uh, very sympathetic to deconstructionists and some of the, the postmodern linguists who pointed out that our concepts are not as fully determinate as we might hope them to be. So we use something to differentiate, you know, 
we use concepts to differentiate this from that, and we can get more and more specific. Um, we we maybe maybe even develop a spectrum like color spectrums where it's no longer just white and black and and the primary colors, but then we put all those special fuchsia and all these other kinds of names in the in the spectrum to help differentiate shades. But the boundaries between those concepts, like things might fit squarely in the center of a concept, and we have no problem with that. But when something's on the boundary, it can really mess with our ability to communicate and to and to work those problems out. And uh, so deconstruction will often use this this kind of inversion, this play of inversion, where I take two things that seem to be uh, eminently opposite or opposed. One of them is given a higher value than the other. And then I show how that higher valued thing actually represents elements of the other concept and vice versa. And I kind of like flip it, right? And then I say, but what's really being shown here is the tension between them and the, and the kind of intermixing between these concepts. And I don't think that that erases the, distinction, the boundaries of distinction. It just shows that they're permeable and, and that the values that we place on them uh, are maybe something above and beyond the concepts themselves. Like the concepts aren't, don't intrinsically bear those values that we place on them. Oh man, you are killing me today. <laughs> Bringing up values and a discussion about language, you son of a gun. Because <laughs> uh, at first I was thinking about uh, the example that we used in the previous episode, right? Uh, putting two colors, right? Green and red. And... Uh, you could put things in the two categories, right? Like if there's only two colors, green and red, then you would probably say this thing is closer to green, right? And then that this thing here is closer to red, so you put it in the red category. Uh, but there's things that are very much on the line. And of course I have like nothing here around me that like you could say is on the line. But I mean, you could picture something that's like more of like a greenish red, right? And it's like, you know, New Mexican Christmas. What what color is that? <laughs> right? And so you put that there and some people are going to say it's red. Some people are going to say it's green. Uh, but you're going to find like a whole, a whole, you know, if you were to like chart all of people's, uh, you know, where they categorize that you're going to find a whole bunch of stuff in the middle and it could go either way. And that's maybe where we come up with a new term. Uh, to define what that color is, yellowish, or um, or we, you know, further classify it that way, and so that allows us to to really distinguish. But then you talk about values, right? Like when it comes to green and red, maybe there is good or bad about that, but let's just say that there's not, right? But then when we specifically talk, I'll just use the words good or bad since I just said them, um, right? We start to put things into those two buckets. And then we learned in the past, you know, 25 years or so that there's a gray area and uh, some things, yeah, <laughs> some things are good, but they have bad outcomes and some things are bad and they have good outcomes. Do we even bother with the good, bad thing? You know, the value that we're placing on it. Um, and that just keeps making me think about like, what is the purpose of language? Like, I can't help hear this question like ringing in my brain that's interesting i'm not sure that i have a good answer for the purpose of language in general i i would say that maybe communication might be a shortcut way out of that but then it's like well what's the purpose of communication <laughs> yeah. um 
So, so there is, uh, I think, if we're saying that distinction is what's relevant to linguistic aptitude and behavior, and that thinking is tied to these linguistic distinctions, then uh, the values that we have are, of course, related to language and thinking as well. So there's not like a clear-cut separation between concepts and the values that we have about them. But I do think that we should be... Uh, should use our language as specifically as possible to draw those distinctions, the the concept itself and the value of the concept and the, maybe the purpose and the function of the concept. Like these are other uh, layers and tiers that we can add more language to. So one of the things I wanted to point out with all of this is the generative a aspect of language. Sometimes people want to say, oh, it's just language and be very dismissive of it. And I understand it can be frustrating because you get into these kind of rabbit holes like you and I have been getting into where like, I can't talk anymore. I'm so frustrated. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think it, what's helpful is that language isn't isn't finite. It, does, it isn't constrained and permanently fixed. It can constantly develop. It opens itself up to other ways of being used. And so uh, there's, there's an ability of language to keep growing and keep developing. Uh, rather than being closed off and, and limited. Yeah, those are really good points. Um, I'll just, I just want to bring it back a little bit, plus skip ahead, I guess. I'm trying to, to get to the finish line. <laughs> but uh, you you brought up values, and we've teased at the, uh, at the arrival of norms in a future conversation. And um, would you classify language... And norms is co-emerging, or would you say that one produces the other? Fantastic question. I've been thinking about this a lot since our last, uh, well, not the last episode, but the one before that as well. Um, <clears throat> I want to say that that language and normativity co-emerge. So, so once you have normativity, you have the structure of language. Maybe, maybe not a natural language, maybe not a fully developed code, but you have the the beginnings of, of language. Um, I do think that there's something, the difference between the kind of uh, normativity in language versus the, the normativity of whether or not your stomach is working properly, to go back to our previous example, is the difference between an intrinsic norm and an extrinsic norm. And this was something I had a hard time articulating before. I think uh, language, the normativity is the concept is a normative thing. So whether or not something belongs under that concept, whether to apply that concept to an object or an, or an action or an experience is adequate or not, is a normative judgment, a normative process, intrinsic to the very nature of concepts. Whereas a stomach digesting food just does what it does and then we can evaluate based on observations of a bunch of stomachs and doing statistical normalcy, uh, whether or not that stomach is functioning the same way as other stomachs. It's a comparative kind of, it is mis, it is malfunctioning because it's not digesting the food in the same way that other stomachs or, or stomach of its typical condition does do it, right? But the, the normativity there is is based on an observer making a comparison versus something intrinsic to the stomach itself. Yeah, that makes sense. And so um, what I just, I guess I'm just trying to get the definitions 
straight here. Uh, when you characterize something like as cup or as blue, uh, is there any normativity associated with that or not? I want to say yes. And what the normativity is, is something that has to be elaborated in the practices of using those concepts. So yes, I do think that there's normativity, even to something like pointing. Uh, you know, we've used this example of looking out past the finger, looking past the shoulder. The normativity there isn't about my arm, right? But it's the, what is, what is trying to be differentiated is something there, right? But which there? And so there is a appropriate there to look for versus an inappropriate. So the normativity is inherent in the practice of trying to interpret and follow the finger. So any kind of distinguish, uh, distinction where we try to categorize something, either we're applying the concept adequately or not. And I think that's intrinsic to the concept itself. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like, um, and maybe it's less apparent because it happened over, you know, thousands, millions of years or whatever, right? The learned behavior of looking at the point instead of the shoulder, or, you know, maybe it was a tail or something else that we used to do, um, versus, you know, like just the straight up definition, right? But then I guess like in other terms, like if I call this a cup um, and somebody else has already had a word that they used for it, but they hadn't articulated it, right? then you say what your word is and you call it like a dongelhingen. And then we kind of argue it out over what might be a better term for it. And we maybe average right. it out or we just settle on cup because it's three letters. Uh, but there's a lot of, it's so interesting that there's like a lot of intrinsic values that we place on things without even really thinking about it. Yeah. So I, I think that's right. We now we're getting into topics of translation and interpretation. And maybe maybe we should bracket those uh, because there isn't just one language. There's a lot of different languages that intersect, and and the questions are: Can they? Can you move from one language to another? But but as far as your dinglehangen or cup, uh, <laughs> um, there is like the normativity doesn't seem apparent when we're just using terms in our everyday practices until somebody uses concepts differently. If I were to suddenly start calling that a table and just insist on that being a table, one of your reactions is going to be, what's wrong with you, right? Like you're making, like normatively, something is not right here. <laughs> <laughs> right. And sometimes, you know, that sort of behavior is indicative of something that's abnormal, right? And sometimes, mm -hmm. I, I mean, like either physically or cognitively ab abnormal, and sometimes it's just abnormal in the sense that nobody else does it. Right. And uh, so I'm purposefully using the word abnormal to to demonstrate that there might not be a right or wrong thing. But in the case of like abnormal cognitive behavior, being able to distinguish that allows us to further look for maybe there's like a brain tumor growing or uh, there's some sort of neuroreceptor that's not functioning properly. And uh, so there's like a whole new field of nuance that just popped out <laughs> because of just the simple use of language. Right. And alternatively, maybe maybe your use singles out something that I had never noticed before. And while I'm calling you crazy and we're exploring what's wrong with you, all of a sudden I come to see the distinction that you've been drawing that, that I was oblivious to. And now all of a sudden, instead of being crazy, you're an innovator. Yeah. 
and you realize there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think that's a good place to kind of wrap up our initial conversations on language because I don't think we're ever going to stop introducing language and problems of language into our conversations. But hopefully this is enough of a background to allow our audience in on the ride. And uh, just because we promised this and teased at it for weeks, I think we should just wrap up the episode by blankly staring at each other for a good 30 seconds. <laughs>